Tune in to The Manifesto, hosted by Emily Wheaton, Logan Cook, and Logan Bishop. The Political Science Society's new radio cast. Catch us on local 107.3 FM and wherever you find podcasts. And hello, this is the first episode of The Manifesto, the new political podcast from the UMBSJA Politics Society. Today I have a special guest, Susan Holt, leader of the New Brunswick Liberal Party. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So, first off, the leadership election. It was close. It came down to the final ballot. How did you campaign? What was your campaign strategy? Oh, it was it was close and it was exciting, wasn't it? Um, well, because I was the last candidate in the race, uh, there were already people who had committed to other candidates mm-hmm. um, right away. So I knew from the start I was asking for second votes in some cases and we did that right away. Anybody who told us they were already committed to vote for one of the others, we asked for their second ballot and were really pleased to get a lot of second ballot support early. Um, And then we went out and worked for first ballot support and so that we could have enough first ballot support to stay through the first round and stay through the second round and have our second ballots come in and help us win it. So, yes, your opponents were a current MLA, a former MLA, and a former MP. Those, not high name recognition, but high name recognition in liberal circles. And you have never held elected office before. That's right. So, how, like, were you nervous to campaign? Um, I, I wasn't nervous to campaign, I guess, because... I had reached out to people before making the decision, reached out to liberals to understand um, if what I was seeing and feeling matched with them. And broadly, I heard from folks that they wanted change, that it was time for our party to have a refresh. Mm -hmm. And folks started telling me what became our campaign slogan or one of them in my exploratory conversations they say oh susan you'd be such a breath of fresh air and by the 20th time i heard that i thought okay people are feeling the need for a refresh they see me as coming in fresh without Mm -hmm. um some of the habits maybe that come from already having served uh and so i think that helped actually to be the new person who hasn't uh hadn't been an mla or mp before now three liberal mlas have resigned in the past three weeks two up north Dennis Leandri and Daniel Katarin and one in Diep and Watch Melanson will you run for one of those seats I will absolutely run in the next by-election there's one more seat that I'm kind of hoping might become available and that's in Fredericton West Hanwell Dominic Carity exactly so that's that's my home my home riding mm-hmm. it, it would be ideal if I could run there but if not yes I had actually I had made the decision of which one of those three ridings to run in we were preparing to announce it on the Friday when Dominic's uh, letter and news came out on the Thursday so we mm-hmm. put a pause on that um, but yes I will I will run in the next by-election and likely in one of those three ridings so holding a seat in the legislature is important to you it is yes we need people of New Brunswick to be represented, and mm-hmm. people want to see what my style of leadership looks like in the ledge. Uh, New Brunswickers are telling me they want to get to know me and see me and hear me more, and the legislature is one tool to do that. So the healthcare system is kind of collapsing around itself. I think we can both admit yes. that. Not enough doctors, not enough nurses, all that if you guys win the next election, say 2024, what are your plans to fix the healthcare system? Well, I'm I'm hoping some of our ideas to fix the healthcare system get started before 2024, honestly, okay. because it's a crisis mm-hmm. and we can't continue like this for the next two years. 
So our team put out six ideas on healthcare that we'd like to see acted upon that we think would really help. And I talked to Premier Higgs about some of that when I met with him um, a couple weeks ago. The first one is a fundamental shift in how we deliver healthcare. We need a primary care model that is like where you go to... When you have a health issue, it's your first port of call, right? Do you have a family doctor? Do you have a nurse practitioner? Is there a clinic that you're connected to? We think that model needs to be team-based clinics so that whether a physician retires or the, the people change, you still have a medical home where you can receive care and that it's it's broad hours and a diverse group of professionals. This day and age, that should include a mental health specialist, maybe a physiotherapist. Maybe you've got a pharmacist as part of the team or a dietitian to go with the nurse or the nurse practitioner or the doctor that can provide you really holistic care that keeps New Brunswickers out of emergency rooms. Because right now we're seeing emergency rooms closures. We're seeing huge strain on that system because people have nowhere else to go. So we have to change the primary care model to this team-based multidisciplinary version. And that means reorienting the resources that we have in that system and supporting it publicly. We also need to change our recruitment game desperately. We need to be making it really attractive to study a healthcare professional career because you're going to get tuition reimbursements. You've got a guaranteed job. Mm-hmm. You'll get cost of living support. Um, right now, if you're a nursing student in New Brunswick, you're doing an unpaged re- unpaid residency or unpaged unpaid learning terms, plus your books, plus your scrubs, plus your stethoscope, plus your tuition. The co- And you can't hold a job while doing this kind of course load because you're in, in these residency periods and in class and it's a significant load and there's very little time to do work. So if you can do work, it's maybe a part-time job, but it's not enough to cover the costs of tuition. We need to make those programs really accessible to anybody who's interested um, and then we have to change the culture of how we treat healthcare professionals in the system. Uh, there's a lot broken in the paramedic system. We've got to look at how we're putting ambulances on the road and supporting paramedics and EMTs with scheduling and resourcing that doesn't leave them stretched so thin and and trucks sitting empty. Um, you know, we, we, we've really got to look at making sure the system is appropriately resourced so that a New Brunswicker who's sick and who finds himself in an emergency can trust that the ambulance is going to show up and that it's going to take them to a hospital where the ER will be able to let them in and not have them sit in the parking lot for 12 hours. And that the nurses and doctors and all of the, the lab techs and the professionals that are involved there have the tools they need to serve us. Because we, I'd love to see us continue this population growth, but if we have more than 73,000 people that can't get access to a primary care giver, then we're not going to see the kind of um, the growth of our province that we'd like. So... To circle back, it starts with changing that primary care model and improving our recruitment practices and shifting the culture and the way that we treat healthcare professionals in this province. So I'm going to bring it to mental health. Mental health, it it might not affect us directly, but it affects us indirectly. We know people who suffer from it, who have who have unfortunately committed suicide. I know people who have. The province really isn't doing enough. Uh, there was one case, I think it was What's her name? Lexi Dakin out of Fredericton. She went to the ER to get help, and they sent her home. She killed herself two days later. What? Like, it, it's... It's upsetting. It's upsetting. Yes, it really is. What should we do to make sure that people who are suffering from mental health and suicide can get help? Yeah, it's... um. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough question, and the Lexi Dakin story is a... Um, 
is a hard one and I'm sorry that you experience that with people that you know um I've got three little girls so I, you know I know that the the, the chances of a a case like Lexi's happening again. Unfortunately, we don't have the confidence today to say that will never happen again mm-hmm. because we haven't made any changes to our mental health system. We don't have a mental health strategy in New Brunswick and we need one. There should be somebody responsible for that. The Child and Youth Advocate put out a report with great recommendations on actions that could be taken to better address mental health. One of them is integrating it into our healthcare system. Right now it sits to the side as if mental health care isn't healthcare. You'll notice maybe when I just described that multidisciplinary clinic model mm-hmm. I mentioned mental health specialists being included there so that when you go and see a healthcare professional to express that there's something wrong you could get mental health counseling right there integrated in the model because it's becoming a more and more common issue for our physicians and primary care providers to be looking at but right now they refer they refer to specialists that don't exist the waiting lists are long kids in the school they're waiting ages to get assessments um, so similar to healthcare, we need to resource it. We need to recognize that it's a priority. We need to invest in the wages and the structures that allow mental health specialists to thrive in New Brunswick. Um, and then we need to look at our ER and our paramedical practices because paramedics should be trained in mental health services. It's more and more of the cases they see. And people who are doing ER work We need to have pathways for people experiencing mental health crisis who show up at the ER to get served appropriately there, which requires infrastructure changes and policy changes. So a lot of work to be done. It needs somebody responsible in government specifically, a strategy to go with it, and then some acceleration of those kind of policy and health structure practice changes so that hopefully we never have another Lexi. Yes, unfortunately, they are happening a lot. There was a, I remember there was a case here in St. John, I think it was two years ago, she was in, she was under suicide watch and she hung herself because there was not enough nurses to yeah. look after her. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. On a less uh, distressing topic, the daycares, the daycares. A news story came out a few weeks ago, I think I saw it in the Telegraph, that parents cannot get their kids in daycares and they're having to stay home and quit their jobs while we're in a labor shortage because there's not enough daycare spots. How would your government create more daycare spots and make sure that everyone who can work is working? Mm, that's a great question because this is kind of an emerging problem, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's related to, I think, a really good thing. The federal policy came out with $10 a day daycare to make it much more accessible for people to be able to afford daycare so that they could go to work and do some other things. Um, But that has meant that we're seeing a real shift in our daycare structures. Uh, Nonprofit spaces that that adhered to the $10 uh, policies fill up right away. Um, classes for early childhood educators and that certification is also filled up. I was just talking to the community college last week and they have 145 students currently in the early childhood education certification program that are going to be rolling out in in stages um, to help fill some of the labor shortage there um, because we also hear from daycare operators who want to expand who are looking to to have more seats supported looking for the talent to help them um, to help them serve those young people uh, the good news is we have strong community college partners that can accelerate um, the the production of talent, and I think we have really will, willing entrepreneurs who are looking for some shifts to the policy, 
Right now, the policy allocates to nonprofit. Um, we're looking at the questions of social enterprise and for-profit daycares and whether they can be included in order to help alleviate some of the shortage that's happening. But it's um, it's interesting how how key daycare is um, to a well-functioning economy, right? You have people who want to get to work. We have businesses looking for talent. Um, and if we can make childcare accessible and affordable, then our economy could grow at a faster rate and the businesses who are desperate for talent could fill more of those vacancies. So it's really actually, whether you have kids or not, it's a daycare policy is something that I think people should really should care about because it affects whether, whether you and BSJ can grow. So let's talk about population growth. The province has, I remember 2016, the census came out, New Brunswick lost 4,000 people. People, including me, were like, okay, this province is going down. Census came out last year, up to over 800,000. How how could we continue those like how can we continue those policies and implement new policies to bring in more people, let be people from the rest of Canada or international? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been really it's been really great in a way to see that the pandemic has really helped people realize what many of us know about New Brunswick, uh-huh. which is that it is a great place to live yeah. for a lot of folks, um, and that for so many reasons one because it's beautiful right we have access to phenomenal nature whether it's bay of fundy tides or the woods of rockwood or you know the our beautiful lakes we've got phenomenal beaches we've got mountains to climb trails to bike like it really i think our nature is part of what is attracting people here as they also look for life that is less hyper urban and full of commutes and horns and red lights and more neighborly right and and where you have a bit of space and you have access to nature um so i think it's exciting that new brunswick has what a lot of people want right now in terms of of lifestyle i think we need to do a few things to continue to attract people that way and we could have a whole separate conversation about immigration policy and the need to increase the targets on immigration and get sort of the feds support for doing that so that we can grow our population that way as well but we've already talked about one of the topics that's key to helping continue to grow our population with folks from other parts of Canada who want to be here, and that's healthcare. You know, people will not either stay or keep wanting to come here if they understand the waiting list for a family doctor or what their access to care is going to look like. Um, But the other thing we need to address is housing. So the population growth is exciting, but it is putting a huge amount of pressure on our housing market and our Mm -hmm. housing stock. Um, and if we don't have housing, we won't be able to to keep or handle more people. So that's a really important piece of it. We have the nature. We have the neighbors. We're friendly folks. We're gritty folks. People, I think, like to come here. If we can figure out the healthcare and housing piece, then I think we could continue to see growth from that 812,000 to beyond. Yeah, housing. We we all know how is the price of rent has gone up the price i've seen a house that would have been worth ninety thousand dollars three years ago sell for three hundred thousand all because there is so much demand and not enough inventory would your government build more build more housing especially affordable housing in cities like st john fredericton and moncton absolutely that was something that was in my leadership platform you know we had a a a bold audacious goal of could we build 30,000 units in five years how might we do that because uh, as much as I appreciate that the government has just put out 
some investment and a plan to build 40 units here in St. John and renovate some others, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the demand. The waiting list for for rent supplements and NB housing alone is about 10,000. And so a couple hundred units that they talk about is not going to fix the problem. It's a a drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the bucket. So, and, and government has a role to play, but government has multiple roles to play. So we could totally reform the property tax system so that people who were looking to develop affordable housing were incentivized to do so. We could support cooperative housing developments and not-for-profit housing developments so that organizations like Housing Alternatives here in St. John could really expand their portfolio so that community groups in other parts of the province who want to set up a housing co-op could have the ability to do so in ways that are easy and supported um, because we need housing in every corner of this province. Uh, Certainly things like rent caps we still need to 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 look at they exist everywhere else but new brunswick um and we need that kind of protection for uh, our renters and people here but we have to be building units rapidly through multiple different channels um and allowing municipalities to get creative on that front streamlining approval processes looking at all the different ways that we could make it easy for anybody anywhere to start to build affordable housing um, and address the real need which we think is upwards of 15 20,000 new brunswickers um, that could benefit from that right now you talked about property tax reform the property tax came out a few weeks ago and there was there was much criticism of, of the government the industry especially irving which is st john's heart and soul really they pay far far less than what they should would your government make sure that industry and people who should pay more pay more yeah, I think it's a real gap in our system, and and we need tax fairness. We have, there's a reason why we have um, the tax rates that we do. We actually, I would argue, need more of them right now in New Brunswick. There's three property tax rates. There's a residential rate for the people who live in a resident. There's what they call a residential non-owner occupied, so that's for apartment buildings or second properties, that kind of thing. And then there's one commercial industrial rate. Those are the three rates. We need more flexibility to tax industrial property properly, um, to look at what's excluded and what the loopholes are. It's all based on assessments right now. Um, And the assessment process that's driven by market value leads to really volatile changes in assessed value of properties, how you assess those values, how you assess the value of an industrial property needs to be transparent. People need to understand those calculations and the rates applied so that they could have better confidence that it is fair and that if it's not fair, we're fixing it. I'm go- we, should talk about the, we should talk about the economy. The economy in New Brunswick is doing its well. Unemployment is... Unemployment is not as high as it was, say, six years ago when it was hitting yeah. 11, 12 percent. St. John, St. John, let's talk about St. John. The port of St. John is leading the growth of this city. The gov- bo- both levels of government, federal and provincial, are putting more money into it. Would your government continue to pour more money into it and make sure that the port, which it keeps being an economic powerhouse in the city? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really exciting what's happening at the port. Uh, It's the result of a lot of people's hard work over a lot of years, actually, to build this port up to where it is now. And where it's going, I think, is really exciting. And we're seeing some of the rail connection um, resurface and investment coming that way, too. So, uh, you know, this St. John is the port city, and it's a huge opportunity and driver for, for the city. So absolutely, we would continue with 
um, support and investment for the for the port because it it makes a huge difference to employment opportunities here and to the uniqueness in the history of St. John. Climate change. Hurricane Fiona hit a few weeks ago, the strongest hurricane to ever hit Canada. I think we both know no, we're not prepared for climate change. We haven't done anything about it. CO2 emissions are still rising, especially in New Brunswick and especially here in St. John. Would you government put it like a cap on emissions? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, because uh, to your credit, it's not one that I've been asked, uh, certainly not recently, as we look at climate policy and ways to um, to reduce emissions. So what I think we really need is um, an energy strategy. That's a big piece of what's missing. Most emissions that we see in New Brunswick are coming from the use of energy, burning of coal, that kind of thing, driving of cars. That's that's where our emissions are coming from. I think there are some industrial caps in place uh, for, for, for our policy towards heavy industry. Um, and, and I think that that's a good thing because you want to be incentivizing companies to innovate, to reduce uh, their emissions. But broadly, we need to look at helping New Brunswickers um, because the energy transition and the current situation with climate change is going to drive our energy prices up. Um, it's still not super easy or affordable for people to change their behavior, right? Maybe I want to drive an electric vehicle, but they're hard to get. Maybe I'd love to put solar panels on my apartment roof, but is my landlord going to do that? Can I afford to do it myself? You know, windmill technology is not something any of us are doing in our own backyards, really, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I did hear about a company called Tulip that I think is doing some backyard wind, but um, there's certainly a role for government to support people as they try to transition to more climate-friendly behavior, but then we also have to look at the impacts of Fiona to our coastal areas and how we protect our coastal areas, how we're developing them. You know, we do have to change our behavior and we, we can't continue to develop at the shoreline anymore, right? We need to be looking at resiliency and mitigation of future climate events. And we need to look at that in our development planning and in our housing planning and, and in our own habits as New Brunswickers who live here and all of us want to be closer to the water and you know closer to nature. But we've got to do that in a lot more thoughtful way, which is going to require more regulations, which, you know, is it, it's a tough thing to ask people to do. But I think, I mean, I know New Brunswickers love and want to protect our nature. We hear it all the time in the public conversations that we have. People want to see us and this government doing more for climate change, reducing emissions faster. We need more green purchasing policies. We need to be electrifying all of our fleets and all of our public buildings much more quickly. Um, So there's lots of different places that we need to invest in order to reduce emissions. Yeah, I live... On, I, I lived for about 12 years of my life right on the water mm. and it was it's starting to become more of a concern of whatever Fiona hits the Bay of Funday it would be we'd be devastated yeah. I'm going to talk about inflation everyone the whole world's talking about inflation sitting here in Canada the US the UK everywhere the price of everything from housing to food to clothes has gone up yeah. extraordinary would your government do anything to cut the inflation rate, like cut the inflation rate down and make stuff affordable? Oh, we would definitely do things to um, help people struggling with inflation. Okay. As a province, our ability to cut the inflation rate isn't. Fair. Yeah, it's not really within our um, our hands, right? You know, there's, but there are things that we can control, and we can 
control how we support people, right? And I think some of the ways that people are paying for inflation right now are the grocery store, which is one, um, and then through things like the rents and the property taxes. So we already talked about changing property tax systems and property tax models, so I won't go through that again. Um, how can we help make the grocery store more affordable? You know, are there ways that we can look at taking, you know, provincial taxes off of more products? Right now, food is, is, is tax-free, but there's other aspects like clothing you mentioned and things like that that aren't. Can we expand the basket of necessities that aren't taxable in order to provide people relief there? Can we look at our aid programs that are supporting people who are um, challenged with uh, with lower incomes? What's a better example? I've been touring the province for the last, I don't know how many, well, I guess ever since I, ever since August 6th, really. Um, and I've gone to food banks in pretty much every community that I've visited uh, and have seen both really cool innovations happening there because of the increased demand and increased need. Um, and so I think there's opportunities for the province to support food banks and their clients um, to make sure that everybody has access to food um, in an affordable way to help ease some of the pressure that inflation is putting on on all of us. Um, things like rent caps, I think, help with that. Uh, there's a whole basket of policies that we could look to introduce. And our team, I can tell you, my liberal colleagues, this is the staff they're talking to me about regularly. People in their communities that are struggling, struggling with the cost of living. How can we help their home heating oil bill, their energy bill? Those things are going up. How do we help? Um, and I can I can say with 100% certainty that a future liberal government is going to be compassionate and empathetic and is going to look to support people struggling with the cost of living in a variety of the ways that I just described. Let's talk about what your government may look like. The liberals do not hold a seat in southern New Brunswick or Anglophone New Brunswick. They haven't since 2020. What would you and your party do to make sure that you can win back Anglo voters and people in southern New Brunswick who have mm. drifted away from the Liberal Party? That is a great question. Um, we're going through a lot of change uh, as a Liberal Party, and um, we're refreshing how we do politics. We're refreshing some of the things the party stands for. I think there's there's two things, two ways that I hope that we can earn the votes and the trust of New Brunswickers in the next election. Uh, the first one is we're building a team. Um, politics and government are not run by one person only, right? It is a team effort. Uh, so I am actively looking for great candidates. And what I mean by a great candidate, a great future MLA to come from the St. John region under a liberal, um, part of a liberal team, is somebody who really is connected to their community, who cares deeply about the people around them, who loves to communicate, listen, and engage with people. Um, and that somebody who can come into government and work really collaboratively with a lot of different partners and community organizations to get results that way. Um, but the new liberal team is also focused on two core shifts. One is a move towards radical transparency. We need to rebuild trust in politics and in political parties and in government. And we're prepared to do that by being more open and more transparent than people have ever seen from, uh, from politicians. We know we need to earn that trust and we need to earn that trust by behaving differently. So we're going to have a team of people who are authentic. What you see is what you get. You'll know where they're coming from. They'll speak from the heart and not from a script that somebody else wrote for them in a back room somewhere. They'll be there to explain why decisions were made, what choices were considered, and to include their neighbors and New Brunswickers in the process. Because we've centralized far too much 
power into one office in Fredericton such that people are so disconnected, so disconnected from our policies, whether they're health or education or housing. We need to decentralize that that power and that work of, of government and elected representatives back into community, partner with municipalities, partner with nonprofits, engage with local folks who know what the issues are on the ground and who can see the solutions better than we can from that office in Fredericton. Um, so those two shifts, this, this, this radical transparency and this decentralization and collaborative-based work, that I think is going to attract us, the best team of candidates that New Brunswick has ever seen. And those people together, we're going to go out and do our best to earn, earn the trust and earn the vote of New Brunswickers who want a more transparent politics in this province, who want to play more of a role from their communities in the future of their communities, where the local school goes, how the clinics are formed, clarity on their property taxes, things we've talked about. So so that's my plan is, is re- recruiting and looking for candidates. If any of your listeners have ever felt a pull towards public service and want to serve their neighbors, um, I'd love to chat with you. Uh, if you think we need more transparency in government, if you think a more collaborative approach that's connected to community is is what we need, then then hey, that's, that's how we're refreshing the Liberal Party. And um, I'm optimistic that that from what I've been hearing from New Brunswickers, this is what they want and need from their next government. Yes, I I, I am currently running for municipal politics. I'm all, I'm 21. Congratulations! So thank you. I'm I'm young and I feel like I have different ideas than people who may be older than me. We need more. We do need more young people like me who have who have grown up in the technology age, who have seen who have seen all this. What's happened? Like COVID affected us majorly. We need more people, young people in politics. A hundred percent we do. Decisions are made, better decisions get made when you have diverse views and life experiences around the table. Uh, we've, we've started some of that shift by diversifying the genders that are around the table. We need to go way further. We need people with different experiences, different racial backgrounds. We need people with different lived experiences. Today, to be a politician, you're probably someone who grew up with access to an education and maybe you know you know with with a family that could pay the bills because running a campaign as as you'll probably learn costs some money and uh so we need to make politics more accessible it needs to include younger voices it needs to include voices of people who have lived different experiences in our province that diversity of decision makers and politicians will make better decisions that better reflect the reality for more new brunswickers has the have the liberals started looking at candidates and selecting candidates for the election, which is not for another two years? But have you started <laughs> looking for candidates and selecting candidates for writings? We have started looking for candidates, and we have started hearing from candidates. We haven't done any selections yet. the The nomination process will come, um, but I've been really excited to get calls and text messages from people who are saying, "You know what? I I." I feel compelled to, to to be a part of the change. I want things to be different and I'm ready to, to put my name forward. So I've been really encouraged by that. Um, and we're out there actively looking, asking people if they'll consider running, uh, trying to show people that politics can change and our party can change. Uh, I think if you talk to my caucus members and some members of the liberal team, they'll tell you they can feel the change and things are starting to shift. Um, so yeah, I we're, we're out there. We're I just today I've had two meetings in St. John and I think I end each of them with we're always looking for candidates. If anybody's interested, here's my cell phone number, send me a text, we'll have a chat. So 
Trust in government. The Dominic Carity letter came out. It was last Thursday. I was getting ready to go to a class and the news dropped. It, it shocked me. It was a scathing letter of the Premier and his policies. The one that everyone's talking about is the Premier wants to change the French Immersion Program. I saw you had a quote in the Telegraph, I think it was today, about it. Can you discuss what do you think about the Premier wanting to change the French Immersion Program? Uh. Uh, quite simply, I think it's really wrongheaded. Um, I think it demonstrates some of what Dominic has said and, and much of what we've heard. The premier isn't listening and is not in touch with what's happening in schools. The education system is in no position to handle a fundamental shift to curriculum and delivery in less than a year's time. Teachers are stretched super thin right now. In some ways, for good reason, and that we have more kids in school, which is exciting. But those kids are coming with more mental health issues. Um, in many cases, newcomers are coming in without English or French, which adds adds a burden of work to the teacher. We've added administrative burden on them in terms of the reporting that we want. We're, we're two years through a pandemic, and so there's been burnout. We've been seeing people leave the profession. We are short of teachers, short of supply teachers. It's like... It's it's completely wrongheaded to try and drive this kind of a change through right now. But teachers deserve a lot more respect than that. And we need to be investing in resources in the school systems, mental health specialists, more teachers, more assistants first before we make any major structural changes. Secondly, I think the changes are wrongheaded for a different reason. I think this goal of um, trying to have every New Brunswicker get access to mediocre French is is not a good one. I think New Brunswickers should have choice in their language education, and I think people who should have the opportunity to choose to learn a second language to a high degree and to a degree where they could use that language learning to get a public service job um, and, and to operate in any corner of this province. And so to take our current model and move to a watered down conversational French for all, I think means that we're going to have fewer French speakers and fewer good French speakers and fewer people who can access government jobs. And I don't think that's good for our province. I think we should, I mean, I think we should back ourselves. I don't know why we don't have the confidence that our teachers and our people have the skills and creativity to deliver exceptional French immersion opportunities, great conversational French opportunities to people who want them, and excellent Anglophone education for people who want that too. Like how, how is a good quality education system too much to ask for for New Brunswickers and for their parents and kids? Like I think it's... I think the move is wrong on so many fronts and we saw it today with the Teachers Association just completely bailing from the conversations about French immersion because they it's being pushed through too fast and, and it's it's set the wrong goal from the start. The province, the premier especially, has been has not been in good terms with unions, any unions, let it be teachers' unions, nurses' unions, any unions. Would your government be more open to unions and more open to their, what, to their say, demands and their wants? I mean, quite simply, yes. Unions are a collective of people representing New Brunswickers. So I found it really, I don't know, kind of gross to watch us fight against our own people, right? Like the people working for the government of New Brunswick uh, in some way, shape or form as a nurse, as a teacher are New Brunswickers and it shouldn't be a battle and and a fight. Unions exist for a good reason and we should be negotiating in good faith, trying to come up with win-win situations where we can get 
the best for workers in New Brunswick and better outcomes in our in, in the systems that we're striving for. So there is a give and take process, but there's a way to conduct negotiations that is respectful and communicative and and, and we don't have that right now. We're going into things with a confrontation mindset, with conflict, trying to have winners and losers. Um, I don't think that's the way to treat New Brunswick workers. Um, let's talk about the electoral system. There has, oh. Especially with the recent election in Quebec, with the, with the CAQ got a supermajority while only winning 40% of the, was it 40% of the vote? It was less than a majority. People are saying that first vice president is outdated and not representative of the electorate. Would your government change the electoral system away from first past the post into something like proportional representation or single transform single transferable vote? I love the question, Logan, because I this is an area that I'm personally kind of interested in. I, I geek out about it once in a while, um, and I'm really glad to see that the public is starting to recognize the problems with first past the post and starting to express more and more interest in changing the way we vote because i mean we saw it here in new brunswick we had by-elections in the miramichi that had abysmal turnout you saw it in in ontario that had abysmal turnout for their provincial election and then the results in quebec that you just described first past the post is not giving us representation that looks like how New Brunswickers vote or what they want to see in the legislature. So I personally think we need to change the system. I'm really interested in some mixed member proportional models that are out there. But what we need to do as a party is have the conversation. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to talk to liberals about what might be a better voting system that we could propose to New Brunswickers in the next election that would make their vote count more and make our legislature more representative of the diversity of people and points of view that we have here in this province. I think it's overdue. I think it's part of what's contributing to this lack of trust in government and democracy. So I totally think it's time for electoral reform. I would love for people to come and join in on the committee work that we need to do to build what we will propose to New Brunswickers for 2024. So you have quick answers. Yes, you you are open to transforming the electoral system. I would love to see electoral reform. What kind of reform is a great conversation for our party and for New Brunswickers? And then we'll see whether we'll propose what we'd implement in 2024 or propose the process by which we would change the voting system. But I, I think people agree that it's not working right now. We're not, you know, the, the vote is not getting us what's representative of how people feel. They don't even feel like their vote counts. So I think it's high time for electoral reform. One of the first things we talked about was you running in one of the by-elections. Say if Dominic Curry's seat in Franklin doesn't come up, where you will where will you run? Will you run in Dieppe, Bathurst, or the Acadian Peninsula? I was, it's, uh, the three ridings are Restigouche, Schiller, Bathurst East, Nipisiquit, St. Isidore, and Dieppe. Um, So I have chosen one of those, but we're keen to make that announcement as a team in the place where it matters. So I'm sorry, I I can't give you the scoop on that one. I was hoping for the scoop. (laughs) Sorry, Logan. Well, I think that's about it. It This was a good interview. Thank you for being here. You've covered a ton of stuff. I'm really impressed with the the breadth of your knowledge. I I hope you get a great listenership. And if anybody listening has questions for me, I'm pretty accessible on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, Please reach out. I'd love to connect with any of the poli-sci or UNBSJ students that are listening to talk politics like this anytime. Thank you. Okay, this has been The Manifesto. I'm Logan with my guest Susan. 
thank you, Susan, for the great interview. And t- tune in next time when we interview Kevin Arsenal, MLA from Ken North.